Alright, alright, and welcome back to another episode of the Reform Singaporean Podcast Where, uh, actually I really do not need any introduction by now, so, ha, huh, too bad Anyway, uh, today I'll be joined by a very special guest uh, Again, not a new guest, uh, uh, sorry, this, he is not a new guest with us He has come on my podcast a few times And he is none other than David Say hi. Hi. All right, great. <laughs> okay, so uh, yeah, we are just continuing off from, I guess, this new series that we have recently just started, uh, where we talk about you know worldviews and you know uh, what what is the Christian worldview, what what is a biblical worldview, why is it important to have one, and uh, in our previous episode where you know we talked about. Yeah, really, why is it so important to have a worldview, or rather to have a consistent biblical worldview? Because all of us, face it, all of us, we have worldviews. Okay, and it really boils down to this. Is our worldview shaped by what God says, or is it shaped by what other people say around us, what the culture says, what you know, even our parents say, you know, traditions, and all, all these other things. So we have more or less covered, you could say, the basics of, you know, philosophy and things like that or, or Christian philosophy to be more precise things like how do we know what we know how do we know objective truth how can we be certain about anything you know all these basic foundations we have talked about it in the previous episode so in today's episode I would like to bring our focus more into something more specific in terms of application how does this look like in terms of how should a Christian use all of this knowledge about these things? How can a Christian use all this you know, objectivity to confront you know, the worldviews around him? Okay, because if you guys know, my, my dear listeners, you know, we are surrounded by all kinds of opposing worldviews, philosophies, and traditions. You know, really all, all around us. They are literally all around us. It doesn't matter which part of the world you're in, everywhere. And anywhere, there'll be people who are walking opposers to the biblical Christian worldview, right? So today, you know, it brings me to the topic of apologetics. Now, to start us off, what on earth is apologetics? And I'm glad to have my friend David to really help us with that today. So maybe David, to start us off, maybe could you tell us a bit about what this seemingly scary word apologetics you know, means? Uh, apologetics simply means the defense of the faith. The word apologetic means the branch of the faith where you defend the faith. So when you say Christian apologetics, people generally mean the defense of the Christian faith. Yeah, right, right. And, and I, I would understand that some of us uh, might not have heard of this term at all, whereas maybe some of us might have heard of the term apologetics before. Um, maybe what are some examples, or maybe what are, who are some prominent speakers or apologists, as we call it uh, today? Uh, here in the Christian scene, there is people like Rabbi Zacharias, there's Lee Strobel, there's Sean uh, McDowell, all, all these people. Uh. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. So, uh, yeah, you know, like what David just mentioned, Ravi Zacharias, or his ministry, RZIM, very popular. 
um, Josh and Sean McDowell, very popular apologists as well. William Link Craig, another very popular guy. Um, it's okay if you if some of you who are listening might. It's okay if you have not heard of any of them. Well, just saying that these are some of the you could say big names. Okay, in today's day and age, in the Christian circles, uh, that they are well known for being the big shots in terms of defending the Christian faith, right? Um, and, and why why I bring those people up? Why I bring all these famous people up is yes to, I guess, help our listeners. Uh, be familiar with what kind of uh, topic we are talking about, you know, what kind of sphere of Christianity we are talking about. And yeah, like, like what David said, you know, apologetics is simply the branch of theology that focuses on the defense of the Christian faith. Now, uh, maybe uh, do you know, David, what are some of the biblical justifications for like apologetics, if any? Okay, so the very common one, if I remember correctly, is First Peter chapter three verse fifteen. So let me read it out for us. First Peter chapter three verse fifteen. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Yeah, um, maybe if you could, if you could, uh, could you maybe elaborate a bit more about, I guess, what that verse is all about? Okay, so if you look at the context of the verse, uh, starting from verse eight, all the way, all the way to verse twenty-two, Peter was talking to a group of Christians who were suffering for righteousness' sake. So, if you look at verse thirteen, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, but nor be troubled. So these Christians are suffering for doing the right thing, and then in the midst of that, Peter exhorts them, in their hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, and then they always have to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks them for the hope that's in you. So, for example, if someone comes up with you and say, "Hey," You guys are Christians, right? What does it even mean? Or why do you guys even believe in God, right? Uh, when, and then Peter goes on to say, you have to do it in gentleness respect. You try to answer them in a way that is respectful and gentle. Yeah. And then verse 16 says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So in summary, the context is Christian suffering uh, in righteous, for righteousness sake. And when people ask them for the hope that's in them, they're supposed to uh, answer back in a way that is uh, gentle and respectful. Yeah, yeah. Great, great stuff. So, I think any Christian would agree with that. You know, First Peter 3.15 is one of the anchoring verses for apologetics, the, the ministry of apologetics. And I think from verses like that, we can also see that it is a command, actually, you know, to be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks for the hope that is in you, right? Um, I think, of course, like what David just shared, you know, in his local context, it definitely has its own meaning, you know, um, persecuted church, living as exiles in Peter's day, uh, and yeah, you know, be, be gentle, respectful, but most of all, you know, honor Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts. Yeah, great stuff. Now, why... 
is this why do I mention this topic? You know, what why is this topic so important? Why is it even worth mentioning? Right? It's because I think many of us, at least the Christians, those of us who might be somewhat familiar with the term or the ministry of apologetics, you know, then they think of all these big names, you know, Ravi Zacharias and so on. Right? And they would most likely think that, yeah, that's what apologetics is. You know, uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, when you look at their videos on YouTube, right, you, you, uh, you will hear them answering all kinds of objections to Christianity. Like, for example, you know, if God is so good, why is there evil and suffering in the world? Or, you know, um, what evidence do you have of, you know, the resurrection of Jesus? How, how do I know that, you know, the disciples did not hide the body or did, did not, you know, fabricate a story? That kind of thing. You know, what evidences do you have? And, you know, sometimes we, we might see Ravi answering these questions. Some of them he answers very well. But then sometimes he will say things like, oh, regarding the question of, you know, good and evil in the world, um, he will tend to say things like, oh, it's because God gives men the free choice or the free will to do whatever they like. You know, God uh, could have created so-and-so a world. Okay, oh, okay, maybe since I'm already on that topic, um, one answer which I'm quite familiar with that Ravi gives, you know, to the question, why is there evil in the world, right? Uh, Ravi summarizes it like this. He says that God could have created one of a few possible worlds. Okay, maybe uh, as you guys listen to this answer, hopefully, uh, yeah, you guys are processing and, and maybe even critiquing his answer. He says God could have created one of a few worlds. Okay, either that there's a perfect world, okay, absolutely no evil, uh, or God could have created, uh, or, or God could have just left the world as it is, created a world and you know, left it as it is, or God could have created a world where you know, there's some evil, uh, or you know, humans have some capacity to sin. You know, he, he, he lists, basically he lists down a, a, you know, possible worlds that God could have created. And his conclusion, in a nutshell, was that the world that we have was the best possible world. Okay? Because, because there's evil in the world, Okay, because there's evil, because humans have the capacity, the free will to sin, and also the free will to love God, that is the best world because that is where love can be most genuine. That is the only world where love can exist. Because love, at least this is his thought process. You know, love cannot really be love if, you know, that's the only thing we can ever do. You know, love can only truly be love if we love God despite having that free choice to also sin. So you see, see that, that, that's his kind of reasoning, right? Um, now, uh, again, if if people turn to people like Ravi Zacharias as the, you know, the ultimate point of what apologetics should be, uh, I don't know. For those of us who might be more reformed, okay, uh, you know, we just went through our Calvinism series, right? Total depravity, right? Would that kind of answer be consistent with what the Bible teaches about, you know, the state of man, or even what about no, God's decree, right? We, we, um, we touched upon that a little bit at least in the Calvinism series as well. Maybe Dave, could you maybe share with us a couple of your thoughts when you hear an answer like that? Yeah, from, yeah, from a well-known and you know, respectable person like Ravi Zacharias. Um, the first question I have is, where do you get that from the Bible? That's not biblical. Show me the verse, show me the passage, show me the theme, anywhere in scripture where you get that from. You cannot find nothing, okay? Zero. That's the first fundamental problem and that should be enough 
to not even consider the answer. But um, to to elaborate a bit more, Jeremy uh, Zacharias, as what Chris has pointed out, has is already making a lot of assumptions already, and of which those assumptions we must address. For example, um, Zachari Ravi says that he looked at all the possible worlds and he chose the best possible world. Right. The question is, uh, I'm trying to say it in a way that's not James White, but, <laughs> but I guess... It's fine, guess just, just one, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, so so the, the first the one question is, um, what does that say about the way you view God's sovereignty and the way God created things? Are you saying that God is limited by all these worlds in front of him? Uh, the question is, who gave him this world, right? Um, that's number one. Number two, you the, the idea of, oh, you know, um, if God will make us love him, all those things, you know, it's, if it's forced, it, I don't know what they mean by forced, then it's not true love. Again, where do you get that from the Bible? You know, a lot of these things is always thinked up by philosophical, you know, human understanding rather than getting it from scripture. So, in summary, the best thing I can think of is where do you get that from the Bible? And if they cannot give an answer, then there's no point trying to move forward. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think yeah. You said some great stuff there. Um, especially you know how, even our defense of the faith, it has to be justified by scripture, right? You no, know, uh, the Bible or biblical answers shouldn't be just for Christians. You know, you know what I mean. And it shouldn't just be, you know, it has to be justified by scripture when we talk about things among Christians. No, no, no. I mean, even when we engage unbelievers, whatever we say, you know, we believe that it's truthful, right? We we believe that what we're saying is the truth. Right? And naturally speaking, to say truthful things would have to correspond and be coherent with God's truth. Right? Right. So if anything that we say uh, in trying to defend the Christian faith, you know, if something that we say is inconsistent with what God has said about himself or said about the state of man, then actually something is wrong. I mean, yeah, um, I don't think that should be um, considered a credible answer or a credible response because it's not biblical you know it is it, so we would respectfully and lovingly say that Ravi as brilliant as he is is biblically wrong on this issue um, this is not to slander him I, I just want to give an example of what we call unbiblical apologetics okay uh, when your apologetics is not firstly based on your theology you know, on what you first believe about the Bible and and I think naturally, naturally, that's where I want to move into what exactly is biblical apologetics? Because, I mean, I only gave one example. Okay, I only gave one example of how you could do apologetics wrong. Okay, but there, uh, I guess before I really get into the, the details, okay, just to give one more example, just now I brought up the evidential question as well, right? You know, a lot of famous apologists today, uh, you know, Josh and Sean McDowell, if you know them, uh, they wrote a book that's quite popular. Okay, I know some of my friends who have that book and they love it, and it's fine because it's it's great as an evidential book. It's it's uh it's about uh what's the name of that book? Sadly, I forgot. Um, hang on, ah, uh. it's at the tip of my tongue. It's on the tip of my tongue. It's called oh no, he has too many books. Ah, this this one that oh yeah yeah yeah. Evidence that demands a verdict. That's right. Okay, I remember it now. Yeah, they have a book called Evidence that Demands a Verdict, and it's a very thick book. Like I, one of my friends who have it, he showed showed it to me before. I just quickly browsed through its contents. Um, 
yes, good stuff, really good content, but it, it's very thick because it really lays out all kinds of, basically, pretty much all the evidential objections to Christianity and you know, the answers for it, which is fine. I, I think on that surface level, nothing wrong with it. I think it's great. We know that Christianity is objectively backed up by evidences, okay? Whether historical, archaeological, scientific, I would say that all evidences would support Christianity and would not contradict it. But what's my main point? My main point is, is such is, 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 um, are such approaches to apologetics necessarily biblical? Okay, and what do I mean by that? Okay, when we argue from evidences, okay, we are assuming a lot of things that the unbeliever um, has, or we are, we are assuming a lot of things that we think the unbeliever shares with us in terms of like worldview, right? Okay, and I think on, on that surface level, a lot of people might be confused. Like, what on earth are you talking about, Chris? Right? Okay, maybe Dave, could you maybe make it a bit simpler, simpler for us to understand? Because I yeah. Sure. <laughs> sure. Okay. So the first thing I would say is that to make it very simple for us, I'll just use one Bible passage, and this one Bible passage will help us understand a lot of what uh, Chris is saying. So the Bible passage is Romans chapter one, classic text. Romans chapter one. Okay, so let's turn to Romans chapter 1. If you have the Bibles, they can turn to Romans chapter 1. And then I'll give you guys specific verses, okay? Now, here's how I'm going to do it, okay? I'm going to talk about two assumptions that evidentialist or evidential apologetics has. Two assumptions, and I'll show you from the text how those assumptions are wrong. First assumption is that non-believers need evidences because they don't have enough evidence to believe in God, mm. right? Yeah. So, oh, you know, I need to give this evidence to his non-believer because if I give it to him and he sees it all, then he'll believe. But Romans chapter 1 says, Nabra. Let's look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so are they, they are without excuse. Very clear. They are without excuse. Yeah, yeah. So, please elaborate a bit there. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, so, yeah, Romans chapter 1 is such a crucial passage for us to understand, to really know the starting point, the foundation for a biblical apologetic. Because what the Apostle Paul, the inspired Apostle, says about creation, God's revelation, and you know, the state of man, etc. You know, he says that, yeah, man actually already know enough. That man has sufficient revelation about God for their condemnation. That's why he says they are without excuse. But man's problem is not a lack of evidence. Man's problem is not, you know, a lack of maybe some you know, logical sense per, uh, per se. But no, Paul says, the inspired apostle says that man's foundational, fundamental problem is their sin, is their suppression of the truth. Right? They know, uh, again, they have su sufficient knowledge about God for their condemnation, but they have insufficient knowledge about God for their salvation. So really, what is the main remedy here? The main remedy to get men to you know, wake up out of their 
spiritual deadness is not to show them evidences that see, you know, this is proof that, you know, Jesus really rose from the dead. Or here, see, here is proof that there was really such a, such a thing as Noah's Ark. No, that is not what will get them to believe. We believe that the Holy Spirit, you know, God, the Holy Spirit works through the proclamation of the gospel. We, we believe that it is the gospel that has the power of salvation. Okay, that's also in Romans chapter 1. Right, uh, Romans chapter 10, Paul emphasizes on preaching the gospel, not preaching evidences about Christianity. No, no, no. Um, that is not how the apostles went about proclaiming and defending the faith. N not at all. Um, yeah, yeah, so I, I think that's great. Uh, I, I think we would have covered quite a bit of, in terms of what do non-Christians assume, you know, we, we would have talked about that in our previous episode. We talked about worldviews. World you know, we, we, to very quickly summarize, uh, a, a lot of us, okay, a lot of us as Christians, we, when we engage with non-believers, we like to assume like middle ground. Okay, a lot of us, when we, with a good heart, right, with, with, with coming from a good place, we try to defend the faith in a way that is reasonable, in a way that is loving. And, and in doing so, we actually assume middle ground that maybe the non-believer and us, we can reach some form of middle ground. So for example, okay, let's pretend, you know, God doesn't exist. You know, then I give you some evidences and then hopefully with those evidences, you know, we can reach that common ground that, you know, God exists. Right, we, we, we assume that the non-believer is already on middle ground, but no, okay? Um, I encourage us to read this guy called Greg Bonson, okay? Greg Bonson, uh, brilliant guy in this area of, you know, apologetics. He says that, no, neutrality is a myth, okay? The myth of neutrality. There's no such thing as a so-called middle ground in all of discussion, you know, this kind of discussion. The non-Christian is already standing on his ground, that says there is no God, or rather, you know, we came from fish, right? or, or the, uh, we came from evolution. You know, he's already standing on that ground and he's not letting go. He's not getting off of that belief system. But what a lot of us as Christians tend to do is we get off, we abandon our Christian worldview in order to try and win them over. But no, no, no. By abandoning our Christian worldview, we're actually uh, accepting the rejection of God. We're actually accepting their belief that they do not need God to reason, they do not need God to get truth, they do not need God to argue rationally or logically. You know, so we are letting them get away with all these assumptions, right? They are like, I mean, I think we would have covered a little bit of this in the previous episode, but we, we must remember that the non the, the uh, unbelievers are living in God's world. They are still living in God's world and they are still abiding by God's rules. Right, and we we as Christians, we actually have to expose that. We have to expose that reliance on 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 God. You have to expose that that the reliance on God to argue against God. Right, they are borrowing borrowing capital. Right, borrowing from our worldview in terms of you know they are assuming objective standards of truth. They are assuming objective standards of morality or logic or whatever you name it, in order to argue against Christianity. Right, and so many of us, we let them get away with it. Okay, so uh, maybe before I go on further, before I go on further, I think Paul in Colossians chapter two, okay, verses. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll just read from verses one to uh, to four. Okay, verses one to four. 
Okay, you know what? I'll just keep reading. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to, re- to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, uh, skipping to verse 8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Okay? Um... And, and Paul goes on from there, but in, in his day, okay, in his day, he was battling with a, a bunch of stuff. Okay, o- of course, on one hand, he was battling with Judaizers. Okay, he wanted to go back to the old ways, Old Testament ways, you know, circumcision and, and the rest. But there was also another battle going on. Uh, you could say it was a battle against Gnosticism. Okay, a battle against people who wanted to, you know, to to adopt a worldly philosophy, a worldly worldview as to how we should view the world that's actually quite similar to how a lot of people think today, okay, Gnosticism, uh, that's a separate topic altogether, but in essence, what Paul is saying in this passage is that there is a non-Christian philosophy and there's a Christian philosophy, okay, basically, all true knowledge, all true things, whatever, wisdom, are found in Jesus Christ, okay, I think that's the fundamental thing we have to get. All of these things, you know, to even talk about anything at all, to even know anything at all, we have to know Jesus Christ, okay? Without which, we really cannot know anything, okay? Um, And see to it that no one takes you or deludes you with smart-sounding arguments. That's in essence what he's saying. Don't don't be deluded by smart-sounding arguments. And do not be taken captive by empty deceit according to human tradition, right? Um... Well, there's so many things we could say about this. Uh, I might have to split this into two episodes, but yeah, there's so much we could say about this. Uh, But in a nutshell, right, we as Christians, we believe in what we call a revelational epistemology. Okay, Uh, we talked a bit about epistemology in the previous episode. Okay, Um, I mean, philosophy 101. Uh, Epistemology is simply, how do we know what we know? Okay, it's called theory of knowledge. How do we know what we know? I claim to know something, like for example, I, I claim to know that murder is wrong, for example. How do I know? How do I really know what I know? Okay, so that's simply what epistemology is. And what revelational epistemology means is that all my knowledge, all my claims to knowledge, to know things certainly, to know things objectively, is really, it boils down to this. Even a three-year-old can understand this. Okay, why do I, how do I know what I know? Because God said, that's it. How do Christians know what they know? How do Christians know anything to be true? Because God said. Okay? It's not because I feel like this is right. It's not because other people say this is right. It's not because the majority of the culture says this is right. No, no, no. It doesn't matter what I think or feel. This is, I know what is right and wrong, for example, because God says. Okay? And I think that is as foundational as it gets. That's as simple as it gets. Okay, how we as Christians can be assured of anything. And we can actually claim objectivity, which is 
um, absurd to a lot of people's ears in today's day and age, you know, that we can actually know something for certain, is because we have God who reveals these things to us. Alright? Okay, um, I guess with that, with that, maybe Dave, I, I don't know, uh, do you have any like examples you can think of as to, I don't know, maybe conversations you had with people that really, you know, because I think some of our listeners might, might be listening to this. Yeah, I mean, maybe I hear what you're saying, but I don't think people would really ask these kinds of questions. Or I don't think people would really talk this way. Or I don't think, you know, how 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 is all these complicated sounding things relevant? Right? What are the chances that I'll talk about, you know, revelational epistemology to my colleague or to my friend at school or to... Yeah, yeah. How is this relevant? Okay, that's a very good question. Um, I think it will come out a lot when you talk to non-Christians, and then of course you talk to them and you ask them basic uh, philosophical questions like, "Oh, why do you think killing is wrong?" All right, and then they mention, "Oh, because it's not right to kill people." I was like, "How do you know that?" <laughs> and then um, they say, "Oh, because." Um, society tells me to then is society correct and then especially if you keep talking talking you go down that road um, eventually they will say this I ask them oh so how do you know the things you know right how do you know what is right what is wrong what is... then they will say oh my reasoning will look at all these um, things right in front of me and I interpret it in my brain and it is what it is lah. so I see I kill people boom they die these things happen. So I asked them, okay, <laughs> the very basic question is, how do you know your reasoning is valid? You know, how do you know that your reasoning is not lying to you and stuff? Then interestingly, they'll say, oh, my, my reasoning tells me that. Or because... <laughs> right, it's, right. You know, it's, no, <laughs> yeah. it, it's circular. It's like how, how your, your, your reasoning tells you that your reasoning is not valid. Right. You know, so in other words, what Chris is trying to say, and especially as you talk to non-Christians, is that if they don't start with revelational, uh, revelatory epistemology, they cannot know anything, right? And again, if Chris is asking how does that play out in practical life, talk to someone and keep asking them, how do you know the things you know? Eventually, they'll hit the rock bottom and then they realize they cannot go anywhere. Um, and the only thing that, the only way they know is either, the only way they know about anything is two, two ways. One is they know everything, or they have someone who knows everything and tells it to them. Mm. And the second one is the Christian worldview. The God who knows all things reveals it onto us. And that's why we know this thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think what, what, what Dave said is super helpful. Because for anyone who might be questioning, how is this relevant to my life? My friend, That it is super relevant. Because all of us, we hold on to an epistemology. Whether we acknowledge it or not. Right? A lot of us, we have a worldview already. Right, a worldview, to recap, is simply the lens in which we look through to define everything else in life. Okay, our worldview is something that we already presuppose, right? Something that we already assume is true. And we, and with our worldview we will define like the what is the meaning of life, with our worldview we will define what is right and wrong, uh what is truth, all, all, all these things. Okay. Whether we acknowledge or not, my friends, we all have it. Okay. And uh, I, I fear, I fear as we have talked about in the previous episode, um, and it's very true that a lot of us, in a Singaporean context, okay, as Singaporeans, we're not really trained to think this way, okay, to think critically about these things. Okay, we are not really used to speaking speaking like this. 
Okay. Uh, yes, I, I would grant the fact that if I were to talk like this to anyone, like my non-believing friends, if I use words like epistemology, if I use words like, you know, they, they will be like, huh? Kong si mi? Or like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> right. I'll be talking alien to them. So, of course, we, we know these words in terms of their technical terms to better understand what they are about. But in terms of application, in terms of what it is all about, you know, what it really is epistemology, everyone has it. Okay, everyone has a belief system that they hold on to. And like what David said, just keep asking, how do you know what we know? How, how do you know what you know? And, and just keep asking in that kind of train of thought. And you will soon realize that the non-believer would either contradict his own worldview. Like what Dave said, you know, his argument would be circular, which is a fallacious argument, right? In terms of, you know, philosophical thought. Uh, yeah, he would have to say like, I use my reasoning to justify my reasoning, which is, is, not, a, is not a valid argument, right? So uh, this is what we call, okay, this whole episode, okay, what, I'm, what I'm really leading to is this. We as Christians have to have a biblical apologetic. And the technical term for this is presuppositional apologetics. We have to have a reform approach, okay? This is what we call the reform approach to apologetics. But even if you're not reform or whatever, I would argue that this is the most biblical way to do it. Because like all things in the Christian life, I believe that God has revealed to us in His Word as to how we should go about doing it. And that includes as to how we should go about defending the faith. Now, let, let me just quote one, um, one story, okay? One, one, one story, uh, hang on, let, let me let me find it. Okay, this is from the Gospels. Whereas to, hang on. Crap. Yeah. Yeah, this is an account from one of the Gospels, okay, um, from Luke, Luke 16, okay, this might be quite a famous story, actually I don't know whether this is a famous story, but basically in this account, um, Jesus is talking about how, you know, you know, there's Abraham, and then there's Lazarus, there's this weird, yeah, there, there, there's this weird story, right, that, that, that can be quite confusing to understand, that can be quite confusing to understand. Uh, let me just read it out for us. This is from Luke 16, verses, uh, verses 18. I'll just start from verse 19. So there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. 
And besides all this, between us you and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father, Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, that, that is such a relevant passage to what we're talking about today because in that account, you have this man who is in, well, well as good as hell, you could say, uh, in a place of torment. And he says, you know, if only a miracle could happen. Okay, maybe what the, my unbelieving family members need is a miracle. If someone rises from the dead, if someone you know, really says, I've been to hell and back, you know, don't go there, believe in Jesus, then they would believe, right? They, they need something like this in order to believe. No, maybe an evidence, an evidence that there's a hell because, you know. But what is said here is so important. Jesus says, in a nutshell, they already have sufficient revelation. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God already. And if they do not heed the word of God, they wouldn't believe even if someone were to rise from the dead. So what is being said here is miracles are useless. Evidences are useless if the gospel, no, if the word of God is not proclaimed. Okay, what people need, because hashtag total depravity, right? What people need is not all these external things that you know will convince them, so to say. No, because they are dead in their sin. Because why we call this a reform apologetic is because we start with the fact that mankind is totally dead, will never come to God, and what needs to happen is the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Right, we what they need is the gospel. Yeah, I think that that, that is what makes this apologetic so amazing. Is because it's gospel centered. We acknowledge that. Yeah, I mean, yes, we can go about exposing their incoherent worldview. We can go go around exposing the fact that they can't even stand on their own two legs when trying to argue against Christianity. But we acknowledge that fundamentally, they need the gospel. So we, we as Christians, when we apply this apologetic, we can actually say that I have a reason as to why I think murder is wrong. I have a reason as to why I can be certain of really anything, even one thing in this universe. I can be, you know, I can justify why, you know, I can know truth. I can justify why I, I you know, I can argue logically all these things, which I think we have to cover in another episode. But, you know, the fact that you, unbeliever, non-Christian, cannot account for any of these things consistently is because you are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. You are, you know, rebelling against your creator, you are assuming things that really belong to Christ. Like we said, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You are borrowing from my worldview. And the reason why you need to borrow my, from my worldview to be consistent is because, again, you are a slave to your sin. And that's why you need the gospel. That's why you need Jesus. That's why you need to repent. Okay, Because what Jesus actually does is, yes, he saves us from our sin, everything that's covered in the gospel, but actually... More than that as well, Jesus also saves us from our inability to even reason. Right? <laughs> right. He saves us from our own invalid reasoning. And I think, I think that's amazing. Right. It is really, you know, when people think that Christianity is a blind leap into the dark, you know, that, that the, some people would say that, you know, Christians believe in their faith despite the scientific 
contrary evidence. No, I mean, that's so untrue. That can't be further from the truth. No, actually, Christians are the very ones who are grounded okay, in objective you know, epistemology, objective, you know, even evidential, uh, you know, evidential backing, and all these things. You know, we are consistent with all these things. And it is only with the Christian faith that we can actually see all these things properly and consi- consistently. Right. Uh, okay, let me see. We are about 40 minutes. Wow, that's fast. <laughs> yeah, we definitely need to have another episode for this. <laughs> but yeah, maybe, uh, Dave, do you have any any other thing to add on top of, I guess? Yeah. No, I guess a question I would ask uh, you is, what other resources <laughs> yeah. uh, would, you, right. would you point them to Resort Apologetics? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so for, for those of us who... There, there's so much more can be said. Okay, we, I, I think I'll definitely make another episode on this as to really getting into more nitty-gritty stuff as to, you know, how exactly can Christians account for, like, you know, the laws of logic, you know, all these very finely detailed stuff. I think we'll save it for another episode. But I think for now, I'm just really covering an uh, overarching big picture as to how Christian apologetics can look like you know, why is it important? Why, why is it so important that we maintain a biblical apologetic? And I, I, I hope um, things have been simple enough so far. <laughs> yeah, don't worry, don't worry. Don't worry if you're still confused or still lost. Uh, I'll do whatever I can to make things clearer in future episodes. Uh, but yeah, good resources. Okay, for those of us who like to read more, okay, a, a lot of this methodology, a lot of this apologetic thought, Okay, you could I, I would say it came from a guy called Cornelius Van Til. Okay, one of the most brilliant Christian philosophers who ever lived, but his writings are super hard to understand. Okay. Um I think for a more summarized version, okay, of Ventilian thought, as we call it, um, would be this guy called Greg Bonson. Okay, Greg Bonson, G-R-E-G B-A-H-N-S-E-N. Greg Bonson. Okay, you can find some of his material, some of his debates against atheists online on YouTube. Those are really some of the best I've ever heard. Um, so, so if you have his books, you know, for example, um, "The Defense of the Faith" by Greg Bonson, or even Ventilian's Ventil's Apologetic by Greg Bonson. You know, Greg Bonson takes all of Ventil's thoughts and like systematizes them. Okay, if that's a word, uh, he makes them a bit simpler for us to digest. But even Greg Bonson's writings can be hard to understand, but they are still easier compared to Ventil himself. Um, so that's for us who like to read or maybe who like to listen. If you like to listen, of course, there's this guy called Jeff Durbin. Okay, <laughs> one of my favorites as well. Jeff Durbin, um, in his messages about you know apologetics, defense of the faith, I think he, he talks about these things very well. Uh, although he has trouble keeping time as I do as well. But that's fine <laughs> if you can afford to you listen to one hour uh, one hour videos on him talking about this. I think he's great. Uh, if you want a more academic debate, I think James White, James White also makes it quite apparent in his debates with various people. Uh, not just atheists, but even you know, progressive Christians, even Roman Catholics, you know, even Mormons. James White also ap- applies this presuppositional method. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I think those are the resources I can recommend for now. What about you, Dave? <laughs> um, the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, Vody Bockham's Expository Apologetics. Very good. Very introductory. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I think that's a great introductory book. Uh, I've, read, I've read it myself. 
very easy to, di- to digest. Okay, it's very easy to, to, di- to digest. And I think from there, I think after understanding his book, it might make all these other things, you know, uh, make more yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I think yeah. when we talk about this, at least for me, it took me quite a while to really get used to all these language, like, you know, epistemology, or like, how do you know what you know, you know, um, or what the chim term is preconditions of intelligibility, like what on earth is that? Right, so I, I think to really you know, dig up the treasures, you know, at least in this topic, this realm of Christianity, uh, we really have to do dedicate quite a lot of time into it, you know, to study and to all of it. But I think an encouragement for all of us, okay? Don't, don't let all these, all these things scare you. I think for me, I wouldn't consider myself a very bright person, right? I think I have a lot of friends who are a lot more academic, academically uh, superior, okay? Uh, in terms of like their general studies and stuff. But once, I think, you know, as I, as I studied these things and once really God opened my eyes to the truth of all these things, it really changes everything because it is a worldview factor. It is it, it's something that really affects your entire worldview. How you view the world, how you view everything. Okay, once you actually grasp this biblical apologetic, it really is so relevant and it's I, I can't even begin to state the practical practicality of all these things. Yeah. Really it, it gives you an answer to literally everything in the world. Like you I never felt so at peace. <laughs> like, like last time I used to question so many things. And I, I used to be so bogged down by how I didn't have any answers or any satisfactory answers. But now actually, I can look around at the world. I can, I can face, I, I can say pretty much any objection to Christianity. And I can be confident that even a not so smart person like myself, I can do this in a way that is biblically consistent and in a way that honors Christ as Lord. And I think that's powerful. And, and that's so liberating, you know. Yeah. So yeah, I encourage us to don't give up if we are looking into this topic. Yeah, and yeah, stay tuned to my future episodes. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Dave? <laughs> Nothing much. It has my way said, you said it all for me. Okay, okay. That's great, that's great. Okay, uh, with that, I think I'll end my episode here. I think uh, for my next episode, yeah, expect us, uh, if, if I have anyone else on board, you know, to be a special guest, yeah, expect us to talk about uh, some of the finer details of this apologetic is what is the Christian approach to even like mathematics, right? What is the Christian approach to you know right and wrong, all these things? So be excited for that as well. So all right. In the meantime, thanks, David. Stay tuned, and God bless. bless.